Welcome to Snapsys, the podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist activist of the show, environmental scientist and member of the Nobel Prize-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Evan Mills. This episode also includes a salute to Daniel Ellsberg of Pentagon Papers fame, just maybe the greatest whistleblower of all time. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, and Christine Samus. Snap Sessions is proud to announce that our own Doug Nunn has published his new book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus. Jolly Old Elf is part Santa biography and part expose of the North Pole's long-hidden art treasures. Check Snap Sessions' website for further info, or you can purchase Jolly Old Elf at Amazon.com or independent publisher Ingram Spark, and you can order it at your local bookstore, like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles. Young people could be the most powerful voting bloc in America. That is, if they actually voted. Why don't they? Find out the answers to this question and hear from the impressive young people who are actively changing America on our podcast, The Youth Vote. We interview activists, elected officials, and others. We also dive into different issues with a focus on how they impact the younger generations in our society. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. Daniel Ellsberg, greatest whistleblower in American history. According to Wikipedia, a whistleblower is a person who exposes any kind of information or activity that is deemed illegal, unethical, or not correct within an organization that is either private or public. The information of alleged wrongdoing can be classified in many ways, violation of company policy or rules, law, regulation, or threat to public interest and national security, as well as fraud and corruption. I've been a bad boy! Whistleblowers take the risk of facing stiff reprisal and retaliation. Louis Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Luca Brazzi. Luca. Whatever. From those who are accused or alleged of wrongdoing. Some of the great whistleblowers in American history include Mark Felt, also known as Deep Throat. Just follow the money. Who helped Bob Woodward unveil the Watergate conspiracy. Frank Serpico. Hey! I'm a police officer! Hey! It's me, Serpico! Who unearthed huge corruption in the New York City Police Department. And Karen Silkwood. I'm doing something good. I can't quit now who worked to reveal dangerous practices at a nuclear power plant in Oklahoma during the 1970s. 
All were major characters in movies that told their stories. All the President's Men, Serpico, and Silkwood. The first whistleblower I ever remember hearing of was Daniel Ellsberg, who spilled news in the Pentagon Papers back in 1969-71. to Ellsberg had been an employee of both the Rand Corporation and the Pentagon from about 1958, when he had begun work with Rand as a strategic analyst with a concentration on nuclear strategy. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. Over the next 11 years, he worked first with people who planned our nuclear strategy and then with Robert McNamara, Defense Secretary. In my seven years as Secretary, we came within a hair's breadth of war with the Soviet Union on three different occasions. In the mid-1960s, he was sent to South Vietnam for two years, working for General Lansdale and the State Department. On his return from South Vietnam, Ellsberg went back to work at RAND, In 1967, he contributed to a top-secret study of classified documents on the conduct of the Vietnam War that had been commissioned by McNamara. These documents, completed in 1968, later became known collectively as the Pentagon Papers. Through his research and experience, Ellsberg came to see that Vietnam was no more a civil war after 1955 or 1960 than it had been during the U.S.-supported French attempt at colonial reconquest a war in which one side was entirely equipped and paid by a foreign power, which dictated the nature of the local regime in its own interest, was not a civil war. To say that we had interfered in what is really a civil war, as most American academic writers and even liberal critics of the war do to this day, simply screened a more painful reality and was as much a myth as the earlier official one of aggression from the North. In terms of the UN Charter and of our own avowed ideals, it was a war of foreign aggression, American aggression. Unable to balance his job as a Pentagon analyst with that of a war critic, Ellsberg dealt with his cognitive dissonance by attending anti-war rallies... and choosing civil disobedience. He ultimately began, along with Anthony Russo, to make copies of these classified documents known as the Pentagon Papers, demonstrating that the Johnson administration had systematically lied, not only to the public, but also to Congress, about a subject of transcendent national interest and significance. So, Ellsberg copied with great zeal both the Pentagon Papers as well as documents revealing the nuclear war plans of the Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations. The plan was first to release the Pentagon Papers and then later the detailed and very scary nuclear war plans. The war in Vietnam was deemed to be the immediate crisis and various important members of Congress, like Senators J. William Fulbright and George McGovern, were sounded out about releasing them in the U.S. Senate, thus escaping prosecution. Ellsberg then circulated some copies privately among journalists and defense analysts to test the waters. He approached the New York Times and then the Washington Post, and quickly thereafter, a variety of publications. The FBI began hunting Ellsberg immediately, and the Nixon administration initiated a two-pronged offensive, taking Ellsberg to court and simultaneously hounding him... (laughs) 
illegally with Nixon's Watergate plumbers, future criminals like G. Gordon Liddy, E. Howard Hunt, and directed by John Ehrlichman from inside the White House. One of their tactics was a covert operation to steal and examine all the files of Ellsberg psychiatrist Lewis Fielding. On June 28, 1971, Ellsberg publicly surrendered to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts. In admitting to giving the documents to the press, Ellsberg said, I felt that as an American citizen, as a responsible citizen, I could no longer cooperate in concealing this information from the American public. I did this clearly at my own jeopardy, and I am prepared to answer to all the consequences of this decision. Ellsberg and Russo faced charges under the Espionage Act of 1917 and other charges including theft and conspiracy, carrying a total maximum sentence of 115 years for Ellsberg and 35 for Russo. Their trial commenced in Los Angeles on January 3, 1973, presided over by U.S. District Judge William Matthew Byrne, Jr., Ellsberg tried to claim that the documents were illegally classified to keep them not from an enemy, but from the American public. However, that argument was ruled irrelevant. That is a lucid, intelligent, well-thought-out objection. Overruled. Ellsberg's defense was silenced before he could begin. Soon further evidence of illegal wiretapping against Ellsberg was revealed in court. The FBI had recorded numerous conversations between Morton Halperin and Ellsberg without a court order. I don't need a warrant. And furthermore, the prosecution had failed to share this evidence with the defense. During the trial, District Judge Byrne also revealed that he personally met twice with John Ehrlichman, who offered him the directorship of the FBI. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Byrne said he refused to consider the offer while the Ellsberg case was pending though he was criticized for even agreeing to meet with Ehrlichman during the trial. You did what? Due to the gross governmental misconduct and illegal evidence gathering and the defense by Leonard Boudin and Harvard Law School professor Charles Neeson, the government was forced to dismiss all charges against Ellsberg and Russo on May 11, 1973, after the government claimed it had lost records of wiretapping against Ellsberg. I don't, I don't know where these I don't know where these documents are. Byrne ruled, quote, "The totality of the circumstances of this case, which I have only briefly sketched, offend a sense of justice. The bizarre events have incurably infected the prosecution of this case." Emergency. Emergency. Please stand by for the following emergency action notification. Infection detected. Ellsberg had routed the opposition and went on to become one of the greatest and most consistent activists in American history. The man who almost defined whistleblowing went on to fight against the U.S.-led war in Iraq. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. Possible U.S. military action in Iran, as well as battling for WikiLeaks disclosures from Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. Although I must admit I find Julian Assange hard to take nowadays, I don't dispute Ellsberg's help for Edward Snowden and against the national intelligence state in this decade. Ellsberg's career reads like a clarion call for justice. But there is some basic human ingenuity, grit, luck, and sometimes silliness <laughs> involved in turning a middle-class, hush-puppy-wearing academic type into a hero. 
Back in 1970-71, when Ellsberg was hustling to hide his Pentagon paper copies, he also had to hide his papers on U.S. nuclear policies. These were at least as damning as the Vietnam truths, but this time exposing the planet-destroying horrors of our nuclear policy. These papers revealed it was possible that officers far down the pipeline could be in a position of first use, that the nuclear football was a joke, that there was no way to win a nuclear war. Everyone loses! <laughs> the nuclear papers showed that first use would likely lead to full-scale nuclear war and the destruction of most life on Earth. Yet with the Pentagon, Vietnam papers a first priority, these doomsday papers had to be hidden. How could a government bureaucrat make sure that nuclear realities got out? How could he hide them from a swarm of FBI and possibly other clandestine agents? Ellsberg decided to, quote, separate all the nuclear notes and documents from the Vietnam material and give them to my brother Harry. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry. To keep at his home in Hastings-on-Hudson in Westchester County in New York. What did Harry do? We'll let Ellsberg tell the story. After I had entrusted my nuclear papers to Harry, he kept them for almost two years, until June 13, 1971, in the basement of his home in Hastings-on-Hudson, where he lived with his wife, Sophia. Harry buried this material in a compost heap in his backyard, in a cardboard box inside a green garbage bag. During the next 13 days, while the FBI was still searching for us, Harry transferred them again. It was good that he did. The very next day, his neighbor told him that she had observed men in civilian clothes probing his compost heap with long metal rods. Yuck. Just in time, Harry buried the box inside its bag in the town trash dump. He had dug out a space for it into the side of a bluff rising above the dirt road that bordered the bluff just above the dump. There was an old gas stove resting on the bluff just above the burial spot to identify it. But that summer, not long after I had been indicted, a near hurricane, Tropical Storm Doria, hit Hastings on Hudson. The bluff and its contents collapsed over the roadway and down the slope below it. The stove was blown down and rolled a hundred feet or more from its last position. Harry and his friend Barbara Denier spent weekend after weekend searching. Backhoes were used, various green garbage bags were found and thrown out, but the documents were lost. I don't, I don't, know, where these, I don't know where these documents are. Forty-five years went by, and finally the Freedom of Information Act freed from the safes what was buried and had remained secret. A good deal of what has been lost since has been declassified. So in the end, the Freedom of Information Act allowed Ellsberg to write about those secrets he had tried to reveal, but lost to a near hurricane and a dump site. The greatest whistleblower in American history was nothing if not determined. If you read the Doomsday Machine or follow Snap Sessions reporting, you will hear the amazing realities he tried to notify us about way back then. Nobody stops Ellsberg. Not the government, not a hurricane, not even a garbage man with a backhoe. Dreaming well of an aspect bright and fair, and my sleeping it was broken, but my dream it lingered near in the farm of shining valleys where the pure air rarefied 
I'm interviewing today a good friend. This is Evan Mills, who is an environmental scientist by training, a very creative person who's been involved in the field of environmental science at various levels over the years. He has been a scientist at Lawrence Labs in Berkeley. He's also been part of the International Panel on Climate Change, which in 2007 shared the Nobel Peace Prize with former Vice President Al Gore. I've known Evan uh, when he came to our School of Natural Resources class uh, at Mendocino High School with his son back probably about 2014 or so and gave us a lecture on climate change. Welcome, Evan Mills. It's great to have you here. Hey, Doug. I'm tickled to be here. Thanks for having me on. As I recall, um, you were raised down in SoCal, down in Southern California, and I checked in with you and you started uh, life in the Hollywood Hills, and then you moved inland, I think someplace in a small town in Riverside County, sort of out in the country a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your family and youth down there in Southern California. I had such a fortunate, great childhood and growing up time. When I think about that, I think about mentors a lot. and the huge role that they played all the way through and influenced, you know, kind of where I ended up and what I ended up doing, you know, much later. You know, sometimes it seems like there's some unspoken rule that parents and family can't qualify as mentors. I don't know, but they, mm -hmm. you know, mine really were in a lot of ways. And it's, I, I guess it's worth going back a click to grandparents' time and to the tenements on the Lower East Side in New York, you know, turn of the last century, the year 1900, my grandpa Nat was born and grew up in the tenements, you know, and climbed out of that. He got involved in summer camps for poor boys in upstate, building tree houses in my childhood. You know, he juggled torches around the campfire, but you know, he was also uh, was an engineer, went to college. You know, not a lot of us have grandparents who went to college. And I really appreciate the, that these days that he could. He was later a chiropractor, very colorful, you know, interesting and influential person to me. And my grandmother on that side, and that was my mom's father, grandmother on that side, Esther, she grew up there as well. And she became a lawyer, woman lawyer in the early 20s uh, wow. with her sister as well. They both went to law school very involved her whole life in social causes, including Native American stuff in the in the 70s. She hitchhiked from New York to LA in the early 20s. And just that, you know, was a thing, you know, the LA Times reported on the Brooklyn girl hitchhikes to LA. You know. <laughs> Both of those, that side, they got very involved in LA and what was called the physical culture movement with Philip Lovell and others. And this was about exercise and vegetarianism. Mm. They were nudists, they were folk dancers. Huh. Uh, this is in the early 20s, right? And that led them into other circles with architects, Neutra Schindler, liberal commentators like Norman Corwin. My grandmother worked for Norman on a radio series he did called Hollywood Fights Back uh, oh, yeah. around the, uh, the reaction from Hollywood to the McCarthy push. And uh, the other side, you know, Grandma Carrie was the, the first grandma I was talking about was Esther, the, my, my dad's side, Grandma Carrie, Grandpa Morris, uh, very liberal, very thoughtful. But that grandma used to always say, read a book and take a walk. And <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> That's great. You know, meaning don't like don't spend too much on one side or the other, but do both. And it's it'll keep you grounded and healthy and thinking. And, you know, they were big into volunteerism and into following the news. And those were important influences. Later, you know, my parents were really remarkable. They've both passed now. But my mom was a very right brained artist. My dad was a very analytical businessman. And mm -hmm. I definitely have threads of both of those in me and my temperament and my interests. My mom was an abstract expressionist painter. 
painter and I'm very interested in uh, Eastern mysticism. And she got a master's degree at Berkeley in painting in the early 50s. And so art was always around growing up and it was very important, you know, even now. And my dad became a CPA, went to UCLA. They both went to UCLA undergrad. And he was very intellectual, very interested in philosophy. One of his philosophy teachers worked with Einstein at the time, looking at kind of like, how did physics and philosophy come together? This is way before it was faddish to do in the 70s. My dad wrote poetry a little bit, and and supposedly that's how he met my mom. My grandmother saw some, was in his office for some reason and saw some poetry on this accountant's desk and said, hmm, I think my daughter should meet this boy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he had me reading Bucky Fuller, you know, later wow. the family built a geodesic dome. So he wasn't your standard stereotype businessman, but that was his bread and butter. They were both folkies, world travelers, you know, it was art around, a lot of appreciation of nature. And they were early adopters of Saturday Night Live in the early 70s. Is always on the TV. You know, I would always go in their bedroom and watch that. Great influences, you know, like yeah. that. And they, before I was born, pretty much as my mom was pregnant with me a little bit before, they moved up out of LA into the fabled Laurel Canyon, which was the Haight-Ashbury of the South right. of Southern California. This was right before that was taking off. They worked with an architect, built an incredible hillside house there, floor-to-ceiling glass on stilts, mm-hmm. minimalist lines, everything. Very exciting. And so I got to be born and grow up in this very interesting space. And and I see that as important because it got me interested in buildings, but also just kind of thinking out of the box a little bit. And then I had the unfenced Hollywood Hills to play in. And there were a lot of kids around, but also this thing of the 60s was going on. We were too young to get in any trouble, but, you know, we would go to the Cheech and Chong Halloween parties, the Roxy Theater, the Troubadour. Stuff was happening, I mean, right on our street. A lot of these people lived on Lookout Mountain Avenue. And then we moved to the country. I was about 15 and we moved to uh, Idlewild, which is small, rural, artsy community about 5,000 feet elevation in the San Jacinto. So three hours from LA, you know, kind of Yosemite without the crowds, amazing granite outcroppings and and lots of art and artists and art school and all that. So I spent a lot of time outdoors. So in a lot of ways, you had an artistic background with your mother being abstract expressionist. And it sounds like your grandparents were heavily involved in your life. And also, I saw Evans Museum, which is a little documentary. I was going to ask you a generic question as, were you interested in science as a youth, going to science fairs and stuff? But then I I saw this little film and I said, well, of course he was interested in science. He was actually making a little museum. So tell us a little (laughs) bit about becoming interested in science as a kid. I mean, I have to say my my childhood chemistry kit is still on the shelf, basically unopened. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't interested (laughs) in science. Science that way, but natural science, yeah, nature. I don't know if I thought about it as science, but the natural science side, because of these influences, you know, we've been talking about and where we lived, you know, I was always out kind of in it. I had rattlesnakes as pets, live rattlesnakes mm. and, and lots of other, uh, you know, reptiles and things. And then, yeah, I got the bug to collect things. So we collected fossils and shells and rocks. And I, I did set up this museum in my bedroom. My parents bought me a set of like bookshelves, basically, they were bookshelves but I used them as display shelves. And I, my dad had an IBM Selectric typewriter, you know, and I would type numbers and put the numbers on the specimens. They didn't mean anything. I just wanted numbers, scotch tape numbers <laughs> on the objects. I didn't make a list or anything. And uh, it was great. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was exciting. And, and I did fine in science in school. I wasn't the best student at all, but never saw a science fair. Didn't, I don't know if they were as popular then. I think they were around, but it wasn't kind of my temperament. And, and you had uh, your own you know, museum. Who needs a science yeah, fair when a kid yeah. has his own museum? Yeah. yeah. After high school, you headed up to UC Santa Cruz and then to UC Berkeley by the late 70s, early 80s. And you headed in the direction of environmental science uh, fairly early on, at least 
as I recall, when I went to Berkeley, you know, after two years, you've got to make the major happen and so forth. So you're heading into, I think, what's called conservation and resource studies. That sounds mm-hmm. a little bit like an independent study type thing. Tell us about how you got interested in environmental science and how you headed off in that direction. Yeah, it was an independent study. I did initially from Idlewild. By the way, I went to a a really rich alternative public high school up there, and that was important uh, in its own way. But I I ended up first going to UC Santa Cruz, very interdisciplinary. You know, I got to do a lot of different survey courses, and I really liked anthropology, but also the built environment. I did some classes like on environmental design, they called it, but also agroecology, it was called, which is kind of Mm -hmm. political economy, as well as just the pragmatic of sustainable agriculture. And then I got a couple classes in energy in there and they hit hit all the right notes. And I really, the energy stuff really resonated because energy classes, you know, they're kind of surveys about, you know, what is energy? How's energy used? What is Mm -hmm. sustainable energy? I mean, these words weren't being used at the time, but people were, of course, already looking at alternatives in energy and everything came together, you know, like the, the parts of the analytical part of me came together with the socially minded part or proto socially minded part. So so being at UC Santa Cruz was a great orientation and helped me find this vein, you know, of study that I was interested in. But I, you know, I depleted pretty quickly what they had to offer. What they had to offer was great, but it was broad, but not so deep. So I ended up transferring up to UC Berkeley as an undergrad still. And I found this department called Conservation Resource Studies, which was a department there that lets you design your own degree or your own course content. And so I could float all over campus and sample from all different disciplines and develop my own research projects and things. So I, you know, I did physics and architecture, but also public policy and a little Tai Chi in there for good measure. And I ended up with a Bachelor of Science degree and my thesis and you know, master or grad, undergrad project and so on was around energy efficiency. That was the angle that I got most interested in. And then I uh, pretty quickly shifted into a graduate program, which was called the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley. And that was run at the time by John Holdren, who was fast forward 20 years was uh, President Obama's two-term science advisor. And even back at that time, he was just an incredible luminary in this space. And there was no better place on earth to study energy and energy systems. I was really fortunate to be in there. And other professors also, you know, had just published the first nuclear winter scenarios and wow. working at links yeah. between environment and international security. You know, a lot of very cross-disciplinary very solid work. And there were students in there working from everything from like the ethnography of charcoal markets in Djibouti to (laughs) nuclear fission reactor safety, you know, with Lawrence Livermore Lab to connections between water resources and international security, you know, cross-border conflicts over water. My master's thesis was on energy use in public housing, energy use, energy efficiency in U.S. public housing. So we just had this wonderful cauldron of uh, cross-disciplinary work. And all the students had a common, you know, footing in economics and policy and technology but then people's interests could go out for their their thesis work and a lot oh. of directions. So that was really, that was kind of the the uh, undergrad and you, you know, master's Evan, work. That's, you're there in this sort of resource-rich environment with John Holdren and a variety of these other professors. And then you end up heading off to Sweden to Lund University for a PhD program in environmental and energy system studies. And so you take all this energy from Berkeley, your own personal energy, and you end up in Sweden. Tell us a little bit about this transition. Sure. So there's a key kind of segment that happened in Berkeley that then gave me that opportunity. And so I I should say a word about it. I was very 
very, very pivotal. So I met, I wandered into a class in the physics department and I met one of my, you know, many key mentors in my life, uh, Art Rosenfeld, who was a scientist. He was a physicist, but he worked at, at a place called Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which I'd never heard of. It was just up the hill, not to be confused with Livermore, the weapons lab that was the same Lawrence, but a different location right behind UC Berkeley campus. Uh, National Lab, basically a think tank managed by the University of California, uh, located right above campus. Hundreds of students, mostly graduate, but some undergrads going back and forth. He was Enrico Fermi's last graduate student. He was a heavy duty particle physics oh physicist until the uh. oil crisis. And then uh, he and a number of other physicists at the time really became retreaded to look at interdisciplinary energy issues. And there was this huge horizon that opened up. And so I met him, wandered into one of his classes at Berkeley. And that was really key, you know, moment. So I ended up doing my undergrad and master's uh, theses up there at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And then this opportunity mm. came through that work environment to go to Sweden. And I did spend about four years in Sweden. I learned a good bit of Swedish and so on, but most of the work there was conducted in English. So I was started as a visiting researcher. It was going to be short term, like six months or so, work on a project, but things really snowballed. It was a very interesting time. And Sweden had just a couple years before it was Chernobyl had happened and they voted yeah. The public voted in a very rare Re referendum. referendum on nuclear power. And this was not a typical Swedish thing to do with the humble, dutiful Swedish public, but they were really, there was an uproar about nuclear power. Sweden was the first to detect the radiation from Chernobyl before the Russians admitted that it had happened. And it was right, literally right across the water yeah. and it had a big impact there. And so I ended up, I was there as a visiting researcher working on a project. Actually, the project was uh, scenarios of Swedish power sector without nuclear power. Sweden, people didn't know this then, or hardly very few people even know it now, but Sweden was the most nuclear energy intense country in the world in terms of the percentage of its electricity coming from nuclear power. Half of their electric power mm -hmm. was from nuclear and is a very electric intensive economy because there's a lot of paper and pulp industry, steel, a lot of electricity used. And so I ended up getting uh, into the PhD program there to work more deeply on this. And we, we embarked on a several year series of projects around developing scenarios of Sweden without nuclear power, what, what might that look like? And, uh, you know, it was just really ideal situation, real world project. It was funded by the national uh, utility. So there's professional work, but I was in a university. I had, again, another amazing mentor, Tomas B. Johansson, who taught me incredible amounts about, you know, energy, energy systems and a global view. How do you take a global view of the he had co close colleagues in India, the U.S., and uh, Brazil, who he wrote a series of books and reports with over time. And then he also taught me a lot about red wine and fine chocolate and eating <laughs> well. And he became yeah. a very good friend and, and mentor to me. And so a bunch of projects happened there. Now, but... we're going back approximately 30 years, what is crystallizing as a movement around energy future for the world, really, when mm -hmm. you think about it, mm -hmm. because yeah. you're talking about nuclear energy, but inevitably... Yeah you're going to be talking about what kind of a difference we can make for the world as a whole in terms of energy use. So in a lot of ways, you're present at the creation of a lot of, of these kind of future movements here and uh, pulling back from nuclear being one of them. So mm -hmm. it's a fascinating area there. Mm -hmm. So you stayed in Sweden maybe three or four, you mentioned about four years total. Did you want to stay or did you want to get back to, you ended up back at UC Berkeley in an academic role. I'm just curious, mm -hmm. did you want to stay or did you want to go back? 
the answer to that question kind of depends when you catch me. I, it was very mixed. You know, I, I was I was certainly homesick and I had a great place I had been working. I started working at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab as a graduate student before I went to Europe. And there was a you know very exciting group of people there under Rosenfeld. And I missed my comforts. You know, I never got used to cold cuts for breakfast and things like that. But I, it was also incredibly exciting. And, you know, I was in the belly of the beast. I was in a small country and able yet to work with members of parliament. I was actually a very close energy and science advisor to the Greens party there, which had just been elected with about 40 mm-hmm. seats, I think, into the parliament. And they were taking this issue front and center. What do we, where might we steer this country? Because the, the referendum was, uh, there was very interesting. There was no nuclear expansion. It was, it was a referendum at the time. No nuclear expansion, no CO2 increase, mm-hmm. and no more hydroelectric power. <laughs> and the country oh was, yeah. was 49% nuclear, 49% hydro, and like 2% oil peaking power plant. So it was like, what? You know, how are you going to do this? <laughs> and so that was the, the that was the topic of my dissertation. So it was just, it was an incredible opportunity. And I got to work with decision makers and take the train back. And I was in London, the South, but I was taking the train back and forth to Stockholm all the time and working with decision makers and policymakers and seeing, you know, how the sausage was made. And it wasn't easy. There was a lot of political conflict around it for sure, but it was, it was very stimulating. So I was glad to be there. I got to see the world. I got to, it was great being outside the U.S. and being able to look in to this odd country from outside, not just energy, but other things. I got to travel, you know, all over the world and professionally and privately. I took the Trans-Siberian Railway. I went to Japan. We did a workshop in Thailand on energy. Uh, So it was very rich time. And I got to work with these, you know, you were saying how what an exciting time it was in energy. And it really was, it was this time where futurists were getting involved, but they were physicists who were futurists. So they were talking about the future. And, and there was this distinction between just stepping back, you know, half a click, this distinction between predicting where we're going to go versus like forecasting versus where could we go? And how might we get there? And which of the places we might end up, do we want to end up? And how do we do that? And what will it cost? Can we afford it? What will the emissions be? What will the impacts on jobs be? You know, all the things. But so that was that time, that nexus. And my professor, Thomas Johansson, was one of these key people, these future-minded people who was working with scenarios instead of with forecasts. And so we developed these scenarios of Sweden without nuclear power at all, no CO2 increase, no building out of the wild rivers, and reduced oil imports. And so it was like a win-win-win all around. And it was it was heretical at one level. It's like, well, how can you do that? That's that's impossible. But technology, you know, and energy efficiency and renewable energy, and these were early days. It was the late 80s, early 90s, but this was very possible. So we did this very rigorously. And, you know, so it was very heady time. And, and that was great to be there. And I learned, you know, a lot of different things than I would have learned had I stayed in, in Berkeley, which they were great people too, but this was a different different yeah. intellectual cohort and they had a different approach to all this. You expanded sideways in a lot of ways. I mean, you obviously kept your interest in yeah. a lot of these energy-based technologies, etc. cetera, yeah. but you were yeah. working in Europe. You end up uh, by the early 90s, I think you mentioned 1992, you're back working at Lawrence Labs at UC Berkeley. You're bringing a lot of this knowledge and interest that you've had in Sweden back to the United States. So when you hit the ground there, were you involved in more policy type thing? Or was it more research? Tell us a little bit about combining your experiences in Sweden with your return to UC Berkeley. Yeah, the Swedish 
period was, it was very important. I mean, one of those differences that you mentioned was that Lawrence Berkeley Lab, where I'd been as an undergrad and as a master's student, was very singularly focused on energy efficiency, better light bulbs, better windows, better motors, you know, better building envelopes, better cars, better industrial processes, use less energy. And that still is the number one thing. But you also have to address the supply side. And that's what Sweden brought in a lot was uh, what's the generation mix? What's the carbon emissions from the power sector? And so I did get to spread out a lot, like you were saying, and get a broader kind of skill set. So that said, I think it was it was great coming back to Berkeley and having this broader kind of language to work on problems with and having a global view that, you know, different countries approach these things in different ways. But Berkeley was was incredible to be back there. I mean, it was exhilarating, you know, very, very bright people, large group. You know, we had several hundred people in our energy efficiency research unit at Berkeley. So it was all kinds of stuff going on, you know, entire groups dedicated to very specific projects. But the focus was energy in the building sector, and it was very project-based. And so we it was very fortunate I'd be able to uh, jump from topic to topic, from report to report, and it was never a dull moment. And I continued my international, kept up those contacts, kept working with international uh, projects and groups. But back at Berkeley, I became deputy to Art Rosenfeld, who was the physics professor uh, I had met initially. And I was very fortunate. We had a great relationship and I got to become his deputy. And he was growing the department from when he started in the mid-70s. There was a handful of people to, like I was was saying hundreds of people. He later became a California energy commissioner, went off to Washington to work in the Clinton administration. And I assumed his role as director of what was called the Center for Building Science at the time. So that was a, an integrative research function to thread together all these very, very specialized projects people were doing on all these energy efficiency questions across buildings and industry and transportation. Yeah, you know, when I first met you, one of the things that I found amazing was uh, you did a introductory sort of climate talk in the School of Natural Resources class at Mendocino mm-hmm. High School. And I was uh, one of the two teachers. You started to talk about various, you know, alternative technologies. Of course, I was very interested in wind and solar and so on. But you also emphasized insulation and uh, making buildings more energy efficient and so forth and talked about the savings there. And mm-hmm. I found that absolutely fascinating because that ends up a lot of the stuff that you were working on at UC Berkeley at the time. Those things are ongoing in terms of improving the future. Some of those aspects are part of the Green New Deal ideas presently. So you've been working on those for years. Yeah, I mean, this was the paradigm in 1982 or whenever I first wandered into Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And the paradigm was energy efficiency can be thought of as a source of energy supply because Mm. it's a penny saved, it's a penny earned. You know, you generate a kilowatt hour of energy or you save a kilowatt hour of energy. And obviously you have to do both. If you have a process that, whether whatever it is, you know, cooking, boiling an egg that takes two kilowatt hours of electricity to do, well, maybe with a more efficient boiling process, you can use one kilowatt hour and still boil the egg. And then you've saved a kilowatt hour. So you've now that egg has half a unit of saved energy or one unit of saved energy and one unit of produced energy in it. So you've, you've reduced the emissions by half, you've reduced the cost by half, but you've still got a boiled egg. And so that, that was the conceptual idea. And it's certainly taken hold and it's still the case and it's become more, more mainstream than then. But uh, you still have to do both, you know, but that's what we did. In Sweden, we had a big book project that was funded by the Swedish State Power Board to bring together all the knowledge about energy efficiency 
and power generation and see, could Sweden phase out the nuclear power plants without further damming the wild rivers and without increasing CO2 emissions, those three goals they had? The answer was yes. And we brought together 30 or 40 experts from all over the world, had a big conference, wrote this big book. And then I did the synthesis for Sweden and say, okay, how could we bring all these technologies together? And energy efficiency was a big part. We reduced the future energy need by about half by doing energy efficiency. But then, yeah, then you have to put in your wind turbines, your solar collectors, your biomass power plants, whatever they were, but you could piece together these these scenarios. That's the kind of stuff you were there sort of at the creation at the that beginning. You've also done a lot of work where you've gone outside the United States or Western Europe to uh, countries that are not as economically advanced. I recall hearing you talking about working in parts of Africa and perhaps South Asia, I might have misinterpreted that, mm -hmm. uh, working in ways to help villages get solar type stuff where they don't have to be part of a giant grid. They can be part of a sort of micro Grid. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the work you've done with powering up villages with LED lights and maybe solar and stuff. Yeah, I, I had a lot of opportunity, thanks to having been in Sweden, to do this global work. It's a small country in a big Europe, in a bigger world. They were all very globally minded. My professor, Tomas Johansson, was uh, was really a global analyst and did a lot of work with the UN and others. So I, I was able to get some things going then and some connections and then even being back in the US, you know, I can continue doing that. So yeah, I was in uh, India for a conference on energy efficient lighting. And this was like lighting like you think of it, electric lighting in homes and offices. It was part of a uh, organization that I helped start when I was in Sweden called the International Association for Energy Efficient Lighting. And after the conference was over, I took a pleasure trip to Varanasi, or it used to be called Benares. And mm. I was there wandering the streets at night, true story. And I was in this narrow market area with you know very narrow walls. And I look over and there's this peddler who's sitting on the ground with a little blanket and he's got all these baubles on it that he's selling, beads, tiny little micro enterprise. <laughs> and it's all being lit by a kerosene lantern. And I just spent a week in Delhi, you know, with hundreds of people talking about more efficient fluorescent ballasts and daylighting controls and better reflectors and all this stuff. And I look at this fluorescent lamp and this guy and pardon the terrible pun, but, the, you know, this light went off and it's like, wow, and very romantic kerosene lantern, you know, this quiet street at night, the smell of incense in the air or whatever but then like energy evan kicks in how many lanterns are there like this you know how much kerosene does that use one thing led to another and i started poking at this question and gathering data and doing back of the envelope calculations and kind of started my own you know skunkworks project on this and looking at the markets the market situation but also the doing measurements in the lab and looking at policy issues and it became this great project and led to a bunch of things but you know basically i was out in the field a lot and you know seeing how like people were buying kerosene by the thimbleful because of affordability of the fuel and they were making lanterns out of discarded insecticide cans and food cans. And when I did the math, it was like they were spending, because kerosene's not cheap, they were spending like a thousand times more per lumen of light, per unit of useful light than we do out of even an inefficient electric light bulb. And yet these are the poorest people in the world. We're spending yeah. more than the wealthy, and, and it's called energy poverty. You know, there's a word for it, and not to mention other issues like the health effects. And, and so um, you know, I really ran with this, and I ended up doing a global estimate and came up with you know, something like almost $40 billion a year wow. being spent on kerosene by 
2 billion people at the bottom of the economic pyramid emitting something like 20 million cars or 30 million cars worth of CO2 emissions in the process. It was so fascinating because it was uh, just a sleeper kind of an issue. I mean, everyone knew about kerosene lanterns, but just hadn't really been synthesized with that global perspective. And so, you know, pretty quickly led into the question, well, what about wireless solar lighting? Right. LEDs were just coming, white LEDs, not red LEDs, but white LEDs were just coming. And so couldn't we couple together a few white LEDs with a tiny solar panel and rechargeable commodity AA batteries? And what my mentors in Sweden called leapfrogging, could could the developing world technologically leapfrog? over the industrialized world and not need a power grid that was really fruitful. And the I think I was giving a talk in some conference about this, and there was a guy in the panel with me who worked at the World Bank in the International Finance Corporation branch, and he was captured by this. And lo and behold, the World Bank started something called Lighting Global, which was a program to basically leverage this thinking and and look at miniaturized solar lanterns and later solar home systems. So that was kind of where where that all led. It's very compelling because I think you're the one who who turned me on to the idea of when a guy in a small village in India or say sub-Saharan Africa mm-hmm. suddenly has access to a solar panel, suddenly the solar panel is running an LED light so his kids can do their homework at home and suddenly they have longer access yes. to an educational system. Exactly. The girls yep. are staying home longer and yes. not getting married and having children as quickly. The yep. whole situation is, is a major upgrade for civilization as a whole. For me, this was a very compelling notion for the rest yep. of the world. This leapfrogging idea why does everybody need a grid? It's the same thing, actually, with cell phones in a lot of these places. Very much so. There were you know, hundreds of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa who leapfrogged immediately to, to cell phones. And they had a very important impact on commerce because they could call around, they could find markets. It wasn't just being able to talk to friends, it was important commercially. And so this is was very similar, you know, it's wire, it's basically wireless lighting, you know, think of it that way, but it was mm-hmm. wireless lighting, because they didn't need a grid, they had the storage locally. I did this whole mm-hmm. project on uh, night fishing in Lake Tanzania and Lake Victoria. I created a whole project area around this called the Lumina Project. It was amazing. There were like 100,000 people at night out on Lake Victoria with kerosene lanterns to attract fish to fishing nets. And so we actually built prototype lanterns with solar LED, and we sent a couple of great graduate students from UC Berkeley to spend a summer in uh, Tanzania. (laughs) And they went out at night with these fishermen on the boats and caught fish and measured the weight of the fish compared to the the weight of the fish caught with kerosene lamps. You know, are we catching more? Are we catching less? And it was this incredible success, you know, and it was better because the wind wouldn't blow the lanterns out and there wasn't kerosene spilling. And it cost because those um, fishermen were spending 50% of their revenue from the fish sales to buy kerosene for the following night. So this is, you know, we call in the business energy poverty, that when you use energy very inefficiently, and the energy is expensive, like kerosene is, you end up stuck, you end up indentured (laughs) to your inefficient 
energy device. And so this is the power of energy efficiency, that when you have an efficient light source like an LED, all of a sudden, the big solar panel that's three feet long and blows off your roof in a windstorm and you can't really afford. I mean, having a, a fluorescent solar home system in the developing world would cost like almost a year of income for a, a very poor family. Whereas these lanterns that were miniaturized, where the solar panel was the size of a current iPhone, right? And the, and the LED light was the size of a, of a pea that was all yeah. of a sudden portable, rugged, could be made in a factory, no skill needed to assemble it, portable, you could have it take it from home to school to the market. Uh, that lantern would pay back in, in weeks or months, or you know, weeks or a month. And so all of a sudden it was really affordable and you didn't need subsidies anymore and there was no maintenance. So that was very powerful. Kids can read, women can be safer. One area we looked at was refugee camps where you know women were very vulnerable in the dark. And when they had these lanterns, they were much less vulnerable and they could carry these around and they didn't need to buy expensive kerosene to do that. So it was very powerful. It wasn't just a climate and energy solution or even just a poverty solution because people could spend five or 10% of their entire income on kerosene to run their lanterns. Yeah. And this is one of the things we helped show in our, our analysis. That's a lot. I mean, can you imagine? So this was socially powerful and it was part of development. You know, the energy is part of economic development, but without the efficiency piece, yeah. you can't I, uh, really break through. This is the little things that make the big things better. And I think having an international point of view on this is key. And that brings me to the next question. For, for some years, you've been a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And in 2007, your group, the IPCC, shared the Nobel Peace Prize with former Vice President Al Gore for all the work you've done raising awareness about climate change. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the IPCC and about making that difference that you think might have led to that 2007 Nobel Award. Well, first of all, there were many of us, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds yes. of authors divided into topical research groups. You know, it was a great thing to be a part of, but lots and lots of us, and we each had our little corner, you know, of the problem. And I can talk about mine a little bit. My um, initiation with the group actually went back to around 1990 when I was a student in Sweden and my professor got asked by Greenpeace to contribute to a critique of the first IPCC assessment, which I think was 1990. Greenpeace was up in arms a bit about it not being aggressive enough and thorough enough. And so they published a, what they called the Shadow Report, a collection of articles uh, in a book form uh, about the real potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so I was a part of that. And then some years later, I think maybe around 2003, four, I was invited to peer review a chapter from the what was now the third IPCC report. They do five-year cycles. And so mm -hmm. my initial contact was with the first one. And the chapter, I had done some work in Sweden on the impact of climate change on the insurance industry globally. But uh, so this chapter was about the effect of climate change on what's called financial services, which is basically insurance and banking together. And so I was really up to speed on this. I had been doing a lot of reading and some of my own writing. And so I, I jumped in with both feet and gave a lot of comments. And they said, hey, can you join our this chapter as an author? You've clearly got a lot of perspectives that we hadn't looked at before. So I, I became an IPCC author. And later I served on a number of different panels within the broader activity. But they centered on the kind of what we called uh, vulnerability impacts and adaptation was one panel. 
And then the other one was mitigation, which is fancy pants word for reducing emissions. So I worked on three or four different chapters and different reports around IPCC over time. But my main focus was on the effect of climate change on the insurance industry and banking. And I co-led a chapter with about 20 different authors from about 10 different countries around the world looking at this. Fast forward to uh, just this week, there's this amazing article about how climate change is affecting the banking industry now because there's a lot of lending to fossil fuel industry that's having stranded assets and there's liquidity problems for lenders. And this is exactly the kind of thing we were anticipating, you know, almost 30 years ago trying to happen now. But at any rate, amazing experience, wonderful experience. I also worked with uh, on another chapter just on the vulnerability and adaptation in North America. So it's kind of a different slice. Uh, and I contributed on insurance and banking, but I, then I got to be part of a group that was looking at agriculture, health, tourism, all these different sectors. And then I worked a little bit on the other side of IPCC, which was emissions reduction or mitigation. And I, I wrote about kerosene lighting and the alternatives to that. So a great thing to be a part of. It's a extensive convening of all these subject matter experts from all over the world and synthesizing the whole kind of global body of research and literature, writing that in concise ways, making it policy relevant, and then dealing with comments. You know, like we had, I mean, it's so rigorous. Let's say our chapter was 30 pages because they had a lot of review, a lot of external review. In the 30-page draft, we might have gotten 300 pages of comments, 400 pages of comments, you know, from dozens and dozens of entities, including every point of the compass, uh, staunch dyed-in-the-wool climate deniers to off-the-deep-end wingnuts at the other extreme who were asking for things that aren't possible. So it was incredible training in this kind of peer review process and being rigorous, documenting, considering critique, feedback, sourcing, you know, what you're saying, reading what you're saying, and in fact, and then participating in the in, a, in the synthesis of this and presenting to governments, public communications that come later. I, because I was a senior author of this chapter, I got to go to Geneva and be part of what was called the plenaries, where they present the synthesis documents. They're called summaries for policymakers, where they'll take a thousand pages and synthesize it down to 20 and then present it with simultaneous translation into 20 languages to diplomats from basically every country on the planet that wanted to send anyone and going over tediously all their comments and uh, amazing you know experiences at that so I have a funny story from uh, one of those you know you can imagine uh, basically a UN theater full of hundreds and hundreds of diplomats all with earphones and and a control booth up high with windows wrapping all around with simultaneous translation and everybody's got a red button on their desk and they can hit the red button and they can stop the conversation and insert a session so you know saudi arabia the united states russia are constantly hitting the button trying to undermine the process that's going on and so you'd have these yeah. they were called uh they were called contact groups mm. where there'd be a particular thorny issue that would come up and there are all these breakout rooms around the edges so there was one about my chapter and so we we went out to this breakout room and then you had to hash it out and then come back and tell the group so we're in this room and the saudis are saying you know in in our country the camels actually like it hot I didn't. I don't know. I never knew that. But we, you know, we made it through, and in the end, it's a consensus document. And so you're editing, you're revising, you're making people happy. It was really encouraging because it, these are these are voted on at the end, and there basically are no dissenters when you get done. Imagine having a room of hundreds of diplomats from every corner of the the spectrum and agreeing at the end on this wording. And so, like, we spent the entire first day, hundreds of us, getting through the first paragraph. Oh my goodness. And then the second day we got through a page. And the third day we got through three pages. 
But at the end, you have this consensus document. And it really, at that time, that cycle I was involved in was not overly watered down, was not at all. And some things were sharpened for the better. It, it was a really, really amazing process. And so I, you know, I stayed involved with IPCC and, and helped write several different chapters and went to a number of workshops over time. And I also participated in the U.S. National Climate Assessment, which people called the, the mini IPCC of the U.S. And that's also right. done on a, on a five-year cycle or something. And I was involved in the third one and writing about insurance, but also looking at the power sector and the vulnerability of the U.S. power grid and a few other things. And that was great experience you know, to work with leading U.S. climate people uh, well, on policy you know, relevant science. I have to say, I want to thank you for being involved with the IPCC, and I want to thank the IPCC for doing all the work that they've done in a difficult situation that's ongoing difficult uh, as we try to make some kind of transition in the next generation toward a less carbon-filled energy system. So I wanted to bring it back here. You came to Mendocino High School with your son, Nathaniel. You guys did a presentation, not only an introductory thing to climate change, but you also talked about energy use in playing video and computer games. And at the time, you and Nathaniel were fresh from having written a research paper on the amount of energy used in computer and video games. And I wondered if you can shed some light on this report that you did way back then, when Nathaniel was a bright-faced uh, seventh grader, and you guys were working on this. Because this, it, this is something that's way off in the distance for most people. Oh, kids playing a computer or a video game. Oh, I want... Oh, that energy use? Uh, maybe. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah, it's it's kind of emblematic of the relationship that I've kind of fallen into around this all this this whole subject area is that I'm I'm interested in I'm interested in the in the bread and butter things, you know, efficient light bulbs and windows and cars and you know, it's important. But I'm particularly interested in what's happening around the edges of the energy using space, areas that don't get focused on, like the kerosene lanterns thing, you know, was an example there. Mm -hmm. People hadn't really looked at it before. And that's a lot of energy can be used in those places and it needs to be attended to just like the more kind of obvious familiar areas and nathaniel i think he wanted to build a gaming pc a lot of kids were doing that and still are you order the components you put it together and we've always been really supportive of his technical you know interests and it's like yeah you know we can do that and i started looking at the components and it's like hey, this graphic card uses 500 watts and this motherboard uses 100 watts and like hey now how much energy is this going to use and and yeah. i don't know and and i said well look you know i'll make you a deal we'll bankroll your building of your gaming pc if you chip in with some time to help us measure the heck out of this thing let's let's kind of study this thing as we build it and maybe what we could do is um build kind of what we think is the typical one that people would be making. And then we can see if there's any way to modify it later, make it use less energy. And yeah, dad, you know, it sounds good. So we set out, the gaming PCs are kind of the Ferraris of PCs. They are way more powerful than the normal computer that you mm. might write an email on because they have they have to do a lot more computing to generate all this uh, graphical imagery and they have to do it in real time. And that was why there was this kind of red flag. And there had been very little prior work, really just some people had looked at consoles, which are important, but people hadn't really looked at the desktop computers. So there, there wasn't much out there. So what we did is we built this computer and we started measuring the power use. We measured the heck out of it. And we modified it, like I said, and we did lots and lots of trials, lots and lots of measurements with different games and different modes 
collected all the data. He was incredible at being able to wire everything up and have the discipline to run these controlled repeating repetitious tests and log the numbers down in a spreadsheet. And what we found is that this computer used vastly more energy than a typical computer and that there were lots of them out there. And so when you do the math, like I learned from uh, Art Rosenfeld and others, you know, when you scale these things up, lo and behold, it was billions of dollars a year of energy around the world. And then we said, well, what can we do about this? So we started modifying it. Well, what about putting that power supply in? What about putting this graphics card? What about changing the motherboard? And we got the energy use down and adjusting settings and things like that. We got the energy use down by 50 to 75%. And so it made a great paper. We published the paper in an academic peer-reviewed journal called Energy Policy. Got a lot of attention. It was very fascinating. And fortunately, the California Energy Commission, which is kind of the Department of Energy of our state, got interested and we submitted a proposal and got uh, like a million and a half dollars through my day job at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab to do a much deeper dive into all this. And we built two dozen different systems. We ran them, in other words, everything from the simplest little console, little Nintendo Switch, up to the $5,000 water-cooled, you know, souped up powerhouse uh, gaming computer, small displays, large displays, virtual reality, head headsets, you know, all these different things. And uh, like I said, we paid, played dozens of different games on them. And it was just remarkable. You know, we basically found that for the US, it was about $5 billion a year was being spent on electricity to run gaming computers in the US. If you want to think about carbon, it's like the greenhouse gas emissions of 3 million cars every year. Wow. And there were important trends like virtual reality was using more energy, depending, you know, on assumptions and how you look at it. Cloud-based gaming was using a lot more energy. And these were things that were coming in. This was a few years ago now. And the energy efficiency was all over the map. These gaming computers, some of them were really low power. Others were really high power. If you looked at one game like Skyrim is a very popular game, the energy use per minute, whatever, to play Skyrim varied by 20-fold depending on which computer you played it on. <laughs> so from like one kilowatt hour to 20 kilowatt hours or one watt to 20 watts, you know, depending how you analyze energy and power, it was really remarkable. And so we were able to slice and dice this problem a lot of ways, and then we could modify these systems. And so we corroborated, yeah, 50 to 75% energy savings without losing performance. And this is one of the really important myth-busting things about energy efficiency in general. It's like, you know, you remember Jimmy Carter getting on TV in the 70s with a sweater, right, yes. saying, that this is the moral equivalent of war. We have to do something about energy and importing oil from the Middle East. We need to put on sweaters and be cold. And that was like the worst thing that had ever been messaged because it was incorrect. It missed the point that it took as an assumption that efficient energy use is the same thing as energy services, that using a gallon of gas to drive 20 miles is a fixed fact of life. If you want to go 20 miles, you got to use 20 gallons because that's the fuel economy of your car. Yeah, but if your car gets 40 miles a gallon, you only use half a gallon of gas. And if your car gets 80 miles a gallon, you only use a quarter gallon of gas. And so we were showing that here that the by all the metrics, these more efficient gaming systems were uh, 
used much less energy than the inefficient ones. We were able to tease apart, you know, why that was. And, you know, Sony and AMD and NVIDIA collaborated with us. They talked with us. Oh, they read our drafts. Yeah. They gave input. Uh, lesser extent, Microsoft, Nintendo, uh, the Gaming Trade Association in the U.S. was very involved. These groups were all on our advisory board for the project. And, you know, we gathered mm -hmm. them a couple times and virtually. And so we, we did a bunch of stuff there. You know, this is just like the high level, but we showed that you could have your cake and eat it too. So what I was saying about services is that the user experience didn't need to be compromised. You didn't have to have a slower game or you didn't have to go back to a black and white game or, you know, anything like that. But, you know, if you look at being a black and white, if you look at Pong, you know, in the 1970s, sure. whenever that came, mm -hmm. a Pong-based system would use like 10 watts. That's like a little refrigerator light bulb right uh -huh. it's actually like a very bright modern led light bulb but let's say in those days it was like a little refrigerator light souped up high power modern gaming pc with all the stops out you know multiple displays you know water cooling you know double graphics cards that could use a, a thousand watts two thousand watts amazing yeah. different user experience for sure that's not the same user experience but it gives you a feel of the the gigantically separated bookends around this this space so that that's kind of the vignette of this gaming project and uh, we did a bunch of reports and we built a whole lab and we communicated a lot yeah. out about it you know i find this too to be one of the greatest father-son projects i have <laughs> ever heard of i always prized my dad for the various things he took me a whole weekend of ball games or managing my little league team and so on he was a great dad he's been a great dad but this is a uh, a unique father-son project that you and Nat did back then, and I congratulate you for that. This brings me to my next question. There's a certain quirkiness in some of the Evan Mills energy projects. You had uh, worked on energy use in the cannabis production industry in Northern California and the Western USA, most especially NorCal. You had done research, and this has led to an absolutely fascinating group of articles that also were peer-reviewed on the energy that is done in indoor cannabis production. This is an, a really fascinating uh, area. This was published in Energy Policy and so forth. Basically, carbon footprint of indoor cannabis production. Maybe you could give us a little lead through on this one too, Evan. Sure. I uh, I often start this one off with a, a kind of teaser question that where the answer now will be obvious, but because we know what we're talking about. But what has more intense illumination than a hospital operating theater? more ventilation than a hazardous chemical lab or more stuff plugged into the wall than a data center more power being sucked you know every every second and it's an indoor cannabis grow uh <laughs> this was another one of those fringe things you know i was in mendocino i walked into a nursery to get some rose fertilizer or something i looked you know behind the cash register and there's these thousand watt lights on the wall and, and in the back room there's all this ducting and giant bottles of co2 gas and giant dehumidifiers you know everything for sale you know hey what what's all this gear why, why is this here in this nursery and one thing led to another you know a couple of bottom lines one i mean these things all vary depending on your assumptions but one cannabis plant has embodied in it like 70 gallons of oil in other words, wow. the energy to run the lights, the air conditioner, the dehumidifier, the fans, keeping the seed beds warm, all of it, heating it at night. <laughs> These are kind of some bottom lines of the work. So I started to pick away at this question and built a model of indoor grow, interviewing store owners, looking at guidebooks for growers, 
gathering what are the practices out there. And then I put together, you know, in a spreadsheet form, what these facilities are like, how many hours they used, what's plugged in, what's not, and modeled from the bottom up the energy use. And that's where some of these numbers come from. And it was just jaw dropping. And the growers weren't necessarily surprised, but everyone else was that, you know, the growers knew Fast forwarding, there's a gigantic grow of one of many being built in Palm Desert in California. It's a greenhouse. So it's greenhouse technology. It's as big as a football field, but it's a greenhouse. And it's got 5 million watts of electric light in it because you need noontime lighting, if not more, 18 hours a day. <laughs> so wow. even yeah. at the greenhouse, you know, the sun is not enough. And what we found is that, I mean, just a couple of kind of factoids. If you look at the least consuming state in the country, which according to one source they have is Rhode Island, the amount by, by cannabis users, if they're smoking indoor grown, it can be like 15% of their entire household carbon footprint. So if you turn all that electricity into CO2 using conditions in uh, Rhode Island in terms of how they make their electricity, one person's consumption average consumption is like 15% of their total carbon footprint. If you go over to Colorado, which is the highest consumption state, it's like 60%, which is like having nine refrigerators plugged in all the time. It was very surprising to me, to everybody. If you compare this like to um, commercial buildings, you know, schools, hospitals, whatever, offices, it's like 30 times as much energy per unit of floor area per square foot, let's say, than average commercial buildings. It's like 70 times as much as average house. And this is not including indirect things like making extracts, right? Or the energy embodied in the fertilizer or building the building or all the making cooked products afterwards, the retail operation, all the things in the supply chain. So it's very fascinating. It's very worrisome. And the first question that any, you know, reasonably ask is, well, let's just run it with solar and then we don't have to worry about it, right? Mm -hmm. Renewables. And it's a fair question. So in this latest report that, that just came out this week, actually, um, I looked at uh, this area of California called the Coachella Valley, which is uh, the desert cities, Palm Springs, Palm Desert, Indian Wells, Cathedral City, Indio out there, which is a major center for cultivation because the local governments have put in incentives and you know, there's a lot of sun. There's various reasons why uh, a lot of development down there. And the growers call it Coachella Valley, in case you haven't heard the, <laughs> the slang. So I did the math down there. There was fortunately some data on how many facilities there were and how many square feet. And, and Coachella, you may, might know if you've been down through there, through the Banning Pass, it's a huge wind energy area. Yeah. The wind blows very strong through that. I think it's called the San Gorgonio Pass, where Highway 10 goes through from like Riverside to Palm Spring, Palm Desert and towards Phoenix. And so it's, it's like a lot of the state's wind energy is in that gauntlet there. So you have all this renewable energy happening and you have all these cannabis facilities. And so it was tempting. It was like a natural question, like, well, how? And I didn't know the answer. You know, like, how does the energy suck from the grows compared to the energy generation of those wind turbines? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? You know, so I went through and it was stunning. Basically, if you looked at all the facilities in those cities, just the desert cities that were either under construction or approved for construction, these are indoor grows that are like 100,000 square feet, 200,000. Some of them are 500,000 square feet all under one roof, right? That's... Mm as energy intensive as a data center, like we were saying before, the, all that stuff at, at build out would use seven times as much wind energy as is generated there today. They have 2000 wind turbines in that valley. And these aren't like little water pump wind turbines. These are wind turbines that are, you know, I don't know how big those things are, 100 feet tall. And if all the entitlements were built out, 
the, the areas that had been kind of approved for zoning to be built into grows, just that part of California, the grows in that part of California, indoor grows, would use more than all the wind energy in the entire state of California. And of course, billions of dollars over several decades, right, to build up. You don't just do, you don't just build up a wind industry, right? This is a huge wind industry, hard won, huge investment. And, and the rooftop, you know, if you just say, well, dude, you know, I'll just throw some solar panels on the roof of my grow. Well, first of all, if you've got a greenhouse, you can't put solar panels on the roof or you'll shade your crop. But even if you have a windowless industrialized factory farm, which is what most of them are, you'd need like 10 or 20 times the area of your roof to have enough yeah. solar panels. And you couldn't afford it. I mean, the, the cost of that would make your product probably unsaleable. You know, you just couldn't recover your, your cost. So uh, it was a mess, but very fascinating. It is a fascinating report. This has been covered in the New York Times. This has been covered in The Guardian. This has been covered in all kinds of uh, publications in uh, various aspects of energy. But I, I teased you about being quirky, but this is one of those things that needed to be covered, that needed to be researched. And when you did, it was revelatory. So it's not clear that, you know, what's going to happen. It's it's really been a yeah. train wreck, especially in California, you know, where a lot of localities are still requiring growing to happen indoors instead of outdoors. They're subsidizing it through rebates in the name of energy efficiency that are really subsidies that are disadvantaging outdoor growers. You know, oh, you're going to put in LED lights. Cool. Let's yeah. give you a bunch of money to put in LED lights, forcing a lot of transportation around. That's That's a big part of the carbon footprint now. And so people are going back to the black market because they can't afford the permit fees. And, and there's a lot of plastics and water use and, you know, there's other light pollution, other other problems with this as well. So, you know, our conclusion is that all that's going to work, if I mean, if you care about climate and if California is really going to meet its climate goals and the country and the world, it can only, this could, can only be outdoors. You just, you just yeah. can't do this indoors. And uh, that's something nobody wants to hear, unfortunately. So, I mean, yeah. the outdoor constituency does, but it's, it's yeah. too bad. Uh, and we'll, we'll have to wait and see what, what happens with this. This is something that you did through hard research. You've come to these conclusions, which are science-based. And so that actually brings me to my next question. You know, you've helped me a lot in the climate change education, sharing slides with me and doing commentary. And one of my favorite uh, high school lectures you did was called The War on Science, which talks about uh, realities about climate denialism. We've been dealing with this now, especially during the last three and a half years of the Trump administration, about climate denialism and sort of anti-intellectualism, science contrarianism, and so forth. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your feelings about that and what you see as this sort of wave of, of denialism and anti-intellectualism. Yeah, or maybe we'll call it the war on facts. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's disheartening. You know, there's a rejection of experts in, in a lot of areas, right? I mean, we're talking about it's not just climate, it's it's vaccines. It's, you know, did we go to the moon or not? You know, is the earth flat? And these are, quote, serious conversations that are, are still somehow happening every day, even in our little town. A lot of schoolyard tricks, you know, like cherry picking facts. And, you know, there's a whole rubric of ways that this is done. And for the public, it subverts their understanding of what's real and and what's fabrication and it does it does real damage you know because it lures people tricks people into making the wrong decisions believing in fictions it's been refined to a high art <laughs> um, it sows doubt you know and distrust where it's not wanted and it's deliberate there are red herrings you know there, there are real conspiracies out there <laughs> 
And yeah. but this diverts people's attention from those and to where it really is warranted. And then for experts who are being attacked directly, uh, if you know if you're not centered and careful and a bit thick-skinned, it slows down your own progress. Which is, of course, one of the the real actual objectives of this is to distract and divert people actually doing the work away from making progress on their work. And that's one of the sad things. Uh, we had some people like that parachuted into our IPCC chapter, uh, trying to slow oh. us down for, for years, because those writing projects lasted across multiple years. And you have to somehow you know keep going and not throw in the, the towel. Um, I got a personal taste of some of this targeted harassment and character assassination against me, and I, I got a taste of what that's like. And it's very, uh, it's very difficult to remain focused and productive when that's when that's happening. And you don't want to spend all your time being angry at somebody and being toyed with when your intentions are relatively benevolent. You want to make a difference uh, for the future. You've got three kids and you know you're sort of progressively yeah. minded and these things are we had yeah. talked a little bit about uh, whether you might see any connections between how uh, this particular administration has handled the covid crisis as opposed to the climate crisis yeah sure it's something i've been thinking about and a lot of people in the field have been thinking about i had the uh, a great opportunity many years ago like 2005 to work with the Harvard Medical School on a multi-year project on the effect of climate change on public health. And uh, it was called the Climate Change Future Study with uh, Paul Epstein there, another really important mentor, going back to that, that theme of mentors. He was originally an epidemiologist who got interested in climate issues way back. And uh, he brought me into this, this project. And we synthesized, again, a lot of the literature. And it was early days, but there's uh, a lot of validation that there are connections between infectious diseases and, and climate change and a lot of other public health issues and climate change. So it's familiar kind of with the rubric of it all. That said, in when it comes to COVID and climate change, there's certainly not at this time any direct link that's been identified between the two epidemiologically. But what I've found in thinking about this and reading around is that there's a lot of very important indirect kind of parallels and relevance and in intertwining of the two issues. You know, you think about it, right? Both of these are, are climate and COVID are, are, are global issues. They transcend national borders. They're existential. They also show our vulnerability to hazards and they show our lack of preparedness and yeah. our kind of sketchy resilience to challenges like this. And they both have disproportionate effects on low-income people and minorities, and, and there are other kind of analogs. But yeah, the, the war of science is playing out here in all of its glory. I mean, I just don't even know where to start, but the uh, there was an, uh, been all these articles, but the uh, rhetoric about wanting to liberate people from their masks and tyranny of the masks and, yeah. of course, stifling experts. People are, of course, getting death threats who are public health officials when they're speaking the truth. This is all the same playbook, and that's what you see. I mean, if you really look into the anatomy of the war on science and the, the eight or ten kind of generic techniques that get used to dissemble and to get people uh, distracted from what's really happening, they're all being used again here. So it's very disheartening. Uh, I was in Japan when the COVID thing really started to heat up, and I was there for the first half of March, and I was struck with how cool-headed the public was and careful and how disciplined they were, even though the country had no strict orders at the time. People were, were masked up, they were washing, they were being conscientious. That's 
there's a cultural difference that's not just in Asia, but also in Western Europe about thinking about the yeah. group. Uh, there's an article in CNN today about this, that individualism, I mean, it, this is like individualism on steroids. And it's, it's a lot at the root of both problems, right, of climate and of COVID and not looking at the group and what's better for the group. And even realizing that there's a selfish reason to do that. It's not just like, well, okay, I care about other people, but also that, hey, if my local economy tanks, my, I tank, you know, my yes. job is at risk or my kids are not able to go to school and there's an enlightened self-interest. So, you know, that's all kind of on full display. And I guess it's a two-edged sword because I think the individualism is a problem, but the solution, and this is the part that I have an op-ed that I'm working on about this, that is kind of, I think, my bottom line that I'm coming to is that it's actually on the individual to address both of these things, climate yeah. and COVID. A, because our government is dragging its feet on both and denying both and spreading disinformation that's deliberate and, and muzzling experts and you know all those things that are happening. But also, and this is the part that people don't want to hear, like with, with climate, we all want to blame belching factories, airplanes and trucks, and we want to blame other entities for the greenhouse problem. And maybe people want to blame other entities like Chinese terrorists or something for COVID. You know what? Individuals, you and me, everybody listening, we emit a third of all the greenhouse gas emissions from the US yeah. economy, from our cars and our houses. The electricity to run our lights is made with coal and oil and natural gas. Similarly with COVID, you know, it's face masks. Like that's that's the main technology. It's not what the experts say on TV. And so the solution a lot depends not exclusively. The commercial sector and the industrial sector has a role to play in these things. But we have a decisive effect on the outcome through our individual decisions. We're not powerless and people do feel powerless and they feel either because it's convenient because you can you can uh, yeah. delegate responsibility to someone else or they just are they're a victim of disinformation or they don't know this geeky facts about energy. I mean, ordinary people wouldn't know that homes and cars are a third of national greenhouse gas emissions, including industry. And, you know, who would it's not common awareness, but it, it is true. And so the good news, it's kind of it's interesting. The individuals can solve it, but the certain form of individualism is also at the root of why this has gotten so out of control. And in Europe and in developed Asia, they've figured it out. They're figuring it out. I mean, they've got their, their cases of COVID down to very, very low single digits now, uh, almost back to where it started. And we're, of course, uh, standing alone in the developed world in, in yeah. rising cases. Yeah, unfortunately, this is true. I want to sort of, as, as we come toward the ending, I just wanted to bring it back to you being uh, having moved up to the north coast of California. I know you and your wife, Erica, have been raising three wonderful youths, and I've had the good fortune to have them in the improv club at Mendocino High School for the last 10 years here on the Mendocino Coast. I wonder, I know it's beautiful up here, and I just wondered what you might say about the pros and cons of living up here and uh, what brought you here and what you'd like to see for the future. We do love it. There's, you know, in addition to the, the nature that you referred to, we have whales migrating both directions every year. It's it's remarkable, first growth redwoods. You know, there's room to move, really wholesome for raising a family. There's there's remarkable community. We like to forage wild foods. You know, we have some of the best gourmet mushrooms, wild mushrooms in the world around here, berries. Uh, we're serious organic gardeners. You know, we love the farmer's markets, love the ability to grow blueberries and uh, sunchokes and barley and all this here. Vulnerability is low. You know, one 
as kind of mixing my day job with my night job, the uh, fire risk is lower here. The population density is lower. It's a less, much less vulnerable social fabric to live in in terms of natural disasters, even in terms of COVID so far. Although, you know, our cases have doubled here in the county, as you know, in the last week or so, we're getting, you know, a later wave of it. I like the distance that we are from the major population centers. It's far enough, but not too far. But we still have, you know, very unusually liberal and artistic community here for a rural area. But there are a lot of cons. I would say, honestly, there's a much larger hyper-conservative population than I'm used to ever having lived around. And just this week, when the city council started proposing that we vote on whether to change the name of Fort Bragg from that of a treasonous slaveholder, Civil War actor who's on the wrong side of history, basically a traitor to our country, you know, it's pretty embarrassing to see people coming out of the woodwork saying uh, that even to talking about it or voting on it was wrong and defending that we have this name and trying to paper it over. I, I would say more broadly, there's there's far more conspiracy theory people around here than I ever would have imagined. And it's sad, <laughs> you know, because they're missing yeah. the real and the verifiable conspiracies that are happening, you know, suppressing climate science, systemic racism, voter suppression. Yeah. I mean, there are real conspiracies, if you want to use that word, but there's a lot of distraction. And I've met flat earthers here and people who think we've never been to the moon and people who think George Bush bombed the World Trade Center. So we're in a bubble and that bubble is good and bad, but I certainly have no regrets for having moved here. It's no plans to live somewhere else. It's it's really fabulous and we can usually have civil discourse. And so it's been a great place for the kids yeah. to grow up and for us to live during these years. I wouldn't yeah. want to be in the urban center even before COVID. And now it's just yet another reason to be in a lower population density area where people know and essentially care about each other. You know, Evan, when I was uh, co-teaching the sonar program at Mendocino High School, this is the School of Natural Resources, I would always be really happy when I heard a kid would want to be interested in, in environmental science or environmental engineering. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about advising kids and going into these areas or what kind of advice you might give and then follow up perhaps and uh, what you think of optimistic reasons to think of our planet with the kids of the future. It's one of my favorite topics or the favorite things to think about and be a part of is interacting with the, you know, the next wave of young people around this and helping people be aware that it even exists, right? Because you go to school and it's like, well, I could be a, a banker or an insurance agent or an astronaut or a fireman, you know, it, one of those things isn't, I could be an energy analyst. <laughs> it's, it's not a, something that people are usually even aware of as a career path. I know when I was working at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, you know, all, my door was always open and my favorite conversations were with young undergrads or high school students who would come up and want to do something, you know, in the summer or just be working on a project. And it's one of my favorite things to, to brainstorm with and uh, see the excitement and ignite excitement with younger people. This space has a huge future, this field, you know, and a huge need and lots of jobs. And it's incredibly rewarding and well rewarded, you know, the salaries. I mean, there's just amazing things you can do. You can work in the public sector, in the nonprofit sector, in the private sector. There's so many different roles. And one of the great things about it and welcoming things about it, the, the field of, let's say, energy and environmental you know, studies and analysis is that every single discipline is here, every discipline. 
In Sweden, we had we hired artists in our department to paint biofuel landscapes across southern Sweden. And what would that look like to the public who's a little ambivalent or trying to understand how is this going to change the look of our skauna here in, in Sweden? Economists, city planners, architects, chemists, physicists, mathematicians, every field, writers, you know, journalists, every field has a role to play here. And so it's very exciting to work in the field because you're around all kinds of people. So as far as like advice to younger people, be curious in a cross-disciplinary way because also the most successful people, valuable people and valued people are the ones who can speak multiple disciplinary languages because the problems keep darting back and forth between science and economics and policy. And so being able to be conversant and fluent in more than one discipline is really important. And that starts in school. I think another thing that I really would coach younger people is how important communication is. It's always sad. You see kids who they don't want, they don't want to read or write, or they're just, they're gnashing their teeth and why do I have to do this? But communication is everything. If you, you can communicate, and especially if you can represent a group, like we, we were talking today about how important group efforts are, IPCC or whatever it might be. If you can be the scribe, be the reporter out, you know, from a group, if you can write the summary, you have incredible influence and incredible value in boiling down and stitching together what has been found and writing and blogging and speaking to be able to go to conferences, standing up in front of an audience, really, really important skills. I think that's great. I do. I really do. And then final question then, what are some of your hopes for the future of the planet now? Perhaps give us a brief overview from the energy and Evan perspective. I've always been naturally an optimist, but the older I get, the, the more challenging it is to be one and also be intellectually honest. Uh, but I, I still am fundamentally. But I think what worries me is that the dirty little secret here, it's maybe not so much of a secret, is that most people can't be bothered with any of this even with the specter of the end of the world, as long as it doesn't happen in their lifetime. And I mean, they wouldn't express it this way, literally, but people kind of act as though they're immune, as though we are immune to extinction. And I'm not trying to be sensational here, but most species don't succeed. And eventually, they very few species, I mean, none succeed forever. (laughs) And most don't succeed for very long. And some succeed for the dinosaurs succeeded way longer than we've been here. (laughs) And we consider them a failed species. And so, you know, people love to blame belching power plants, like I said before, and, and there's enough blame to go around, but we really need to take more active responsibility to do the right thing and buy the right car and buy the right refrigerator. Uh, But there's a lot to be hopeful for. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I'd worked a lot with the insurance industry and the banking industry and the finance community is gotten incredibly involved in this space because they're seeing this specter of what you know in their jargon stranded assets and that they have assets that they've invested in loaned money to that may not be able to live out their economic lives like coal-fired power plants and coal mines and that there is these notions of carbon budgets that we we can't just emit carbon indefinitely we need to set targets as a society and not all the coal is going to ever come out of the ground not all the oil or gas is ever going to come out of the ground uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so like the head of the uh, Bank of England said recently, it was a great little quote, we can't shelter in place from climate change. And that, you know, this is not hypothetical. Uh, 
Coal companies are already going bankrupt left and right. The Dow Jones index on coal is down like 90% in the last six years. And this isn't because of liberal politicians, obviously. We've had a president in the White House who probably, you know, eats some coal three meals a day with his burgers. But the market is just saying, no, you know, this is too risky. This is not the future. And meanwhile, environmental, socially responsible investing is catching up. Pension funds are divesting. You know, we all remember South Africa when Mandela was in jail and apartheid and, and the pension funds and CalSTRS and CalPERS. And there's a huge sea change towards investing in uh, de-risking portfolios, you know, is the language. Let's de This isn't about tree hugging. This is about let's not take risk, undo risk for our investors. It's not prudent. We're fiduciaries. We cannot legally and ethically invest in dying industries that have huge liability exposure, let alone just business risk. And yet there's risk and opportunity. Let's invest in the future, which is not genetic engineering, it's wind and solar and efficiency and so on. So we're green bonds, you know, we're really seeing that happen. And I guess we kind of end here where we started uh, with with kids, you know, what did Evan do as a little kid? And, you know, now I'm getting long in the tooth myself. And, you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, what about the children now? And, And I think Good news, you know, the kids really do care. Most of the kids really care if they're not overly kind of brainwashed, but they're also overwhelmed by the mess that the preceding generations have created. And it's it's overwhelming and it's psychologically and emotionally overwhelming the adversity and the challenges and the mean spiritedness of the dialogue too, but like kind of the technical problems as well as the socio socio uh, sociological kind of context. And I think we've asked too much of them in terms of the burdens that they now have to understand and deal with. So we still have responsibility to nurture them and help them get the smarts and the the, the money and the resources to pick up the gauntlet, you know, and wishing them luck and supporting them and hoping that they can prevail and turn the ship a bit when, or more than a bit, turn the ship a lot, bend the curve, as we're all saying these days, when it's their turn. And and I think that that still can happen. I mean, that's the optimistic part. What what hasn't changed is that the future is ours to be chosen. And that's the way back to the time in Sweden. That's the distinction between forecasting energy and carbon and all that and scenario work, which is not a forecast. It's what's possible and choosing deliberately from what's possible and taking ourselves and our society down that path because we can and we want to, rather than passively saying, well, here's what's happening. We better buckle our seatbelts and take it, which is what, what the more passive reactive approaches to to planning and to carrying on you know as a civilization but the scenario the what what's possible view not what's impossible not what's impractical but there's a lot of different pathways we can take that are doable cost effective where we can prosper also and be healthier and do better and get on top of this climate problem that's that's still within reach but it takes way more volition than uh, we currently have as a society. And so that's that's where the kids are. And I, I am optimistic because they're so smart. They're yeah. so smart and they're full of energy and creativity and they're incredibly technologically skilled and their bullshit filters are stronger than ours were. And so they're, right. you know, they really learned how to think and listen critically. And so hopefully they can make more decisions out of knowledge rather than out of fear or following a fad and a trend and, and misinformation yeah. and disinformation. So that's, I think that's a very positive note, but we, so we, we need to help them and be encouraging them in that process because it's, these are really hard, hard and, and difficult times for uh, yeah. people of every age. 
on that note, that's a good place to stop. And we want to thank Evan Mills for being our guest on Snap Sessions and providing us a perspective on energy past and future and all the work you've done in the uh, field of environmental science. We thank you very much for your perspective, Evan. Thanks for being part of Snap Sessions. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was very fun and interesting talking to you. So thanks for the opportunity, Doug. Thanks to our artist of the show, environmental scientist and member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Evan Mills. Our production team includes techmeister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.